I'd invite you to turn to James chapter 5 if you haven't. Thank you for reading, Ben. Even, even as we read that text, it, it's pretty clear what James is getting at, isn't it? Pray. Pray in all seasons of life. Are you suffering? Pray. Are things going well? Pray. Are you sick? Pray. Also, the prayer of a righteous person does a lot, so just pray. Well, if you were explaining this text to someone, I think that's what you would start to talk about. But then if you started to read the text, that clarity would give way to a lot of confusion as you start to explain what it means to anoint somebody with oil. Or, like, why is it that sometimes you pray for someone to be healed, but they don't get healed? And, and what's this whole bit about the prayers of a righteous person are very powerful in their effect? What about the rest of us normal people? Well, as clear as this passage is, there are some really difficult elements that we're going to have to get into this morning. So I want to do something a little bit different, and I just want to start with the end of the passage to assure you that we should pray with confidence in the power of prayer. For all of the confusion that we might encounter in our prayers, we should pray with confidence in the power of prayer. So I direct your attention to verse 17, where James gives us this example of Elijah. He says, Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. That whole account comes from 1 Kings 18. I would encourage you to read the story of this guy and everything that God did in his life and through his prayers. And if you do that, I think you'll ask yourself a question. Why is it that James picked this instance as an example of powerful prayer? What, what about the occasion where Elijah prayed for this widow's son that had died, and then he came back to life? Or, or what about this contest, contest that um, Elijah had with the prophets of Baal, where they're all gathered together. These prophets have been cutting themselves, trying to show the power of their God. And then Elijah prays, and fire comes down from heaven and, and consumes the sacrifice. How come James didn't pick these powerful instances? I don't know. This, I'll give you my guess, though. In this instance, Elijah prays, and, and when it's recorded in 1 Kings 18, there's not even the, a record that Elijah prayed. The closest we get is Elijah was in the presence of the Lord and Elijah bowed down. So it's almost like James has picked the one like mundane instance of prayer in Elijah's life and says he's just like us praying prayers. But then if you keep reading, when Elijah prays for it to rain again, do you know what happens? It doesn't rain again. It doesn't rain right away. In fact, he sends a guy seven times to look over the horizon to see if a rain cloud is coming. And at first, the guy sees nothing. And then each time, the cloud gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think what James wants us to catch on to is that when we pray, God hears our prayer, but he doesn't always respond on our timeline. So we need to pray with patient endurance and trust that God will act according to his will and in his time. I think all of us would admit that we're not very good at praying, and very often when we do pray, it's like, in the way my grandma said it, our prayers hit the ceiling and come right back down. It's like we don't actually believe that our prayers are powerful. 
But Elijah shows us a guy who's just like us, who prays, and it's very powerful in its effect. That's amazing. Now, you, you might be thinking, okay, but for real, this is Elijah the prophet. He's not really a guy just like me. Well, this is why you need to read First Kings and read about Elijah. Elijah is one of the most complainy, glum, just depressed guys that you're going to read about in the Old Testament. He is someone just like us. He's a guy who, who can do something great by God's power and then hide away and think he's the only God-fearing individual in all of the land. Isn't that us? We'll see God do something marvelous and, and even miraculous maybe in our lives in one moment, and then in the next moment we think, we're the only Christians on planet Earth. <laughs> you know, God, God is not with us. God is not for us. How miserable we are. That's Elijah. So take heart, take hope that prayer is powerful regardless of who you are. If you're one of God's people, God will work through your prayers. That should help us in everything else that we hit this morning. We should expect that we actually do connect with God in our prayers. I also want to front this with two sub-points. Number one, why can we be confident that God always meets us in our prayer? Why can we be confident of this? Well, on one level, we should have no confidence that we can have the ear of God when we speak to him. On one level, we would say all things being equal, we shouldn't. God shouldn't hear us. Even in the Old Testament, when you look at the way that Israel developed and all of these sacred places that were set up where they could be confident that they would be able to meet God in prayer, often God would destroy these sacred places. So think about Shiloh, where God destroyed that place, and then they built up the temple at Jerusalem. And the way that you would know God would hear you is you would go to Jerusalem, and you would go to the temple and pray. And if you couldn't go there, you would pray towards the temple in hopes that God would still hear you. Well, then God destroyed that temple, twice, actually. So what confidence do we have that God will hear us? Our confidence is in Jesus Christ. This is a whole message of Jesus where he's saying, no longer will he set up sacred places. He'll make us into sacred people. He'll make us a temple of God ourselves. He'll make us a household of prayer. So I want to say whatever else you think about prayer, you can be confident in your prayers because Jesus allows you to enter boldly before the throne of grace and speak to God our Father. And because Jesus intercedes on our behalf, and because the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, even when we don't know what to pray or how to pray, he prays on our behalf. Because of Jesus and the Spirit and our loving Heavenly Father, our prayers always matter. We always have the ear of God. So why can we pray? Because Jesus created access to the throne room of grace for us because he and the Spirit intercede on our behalf. So why, that's why we can pray. But you might be asking, well, why should I pray? You know, honestly, prayer is hard. And it's not necessarily fun. And often we don't feel like praying. We don't, you know, think, yeah, let me pray in every moment of my day. So why should we pray? Think fundamentally. James wants us to pray because it's the primary way that we draw near to God 
Therefore, it's also the primary way that God draws near to us. So if you remember from James 4, 8, James told his readers, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So fundamentally, why do we pray? We pray as a movement towards God that invites God to move toward us in whatever season of life or in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. If that's fundamentally what prayer is, if prayer is fundamentally a movement towards God and an invitation for God to move toward us, there are several wrong notions of prayer that we need to set aside before we go further. First, we can set aside the notion that prayer is merely a duty to be placed on a checklist. So so if prayer is us moving towards God and God moving towards us, then prayer is not just a checklist item. Um, I read a book once by, it's called A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life by a guy named William Law. He's the right guy to write that book. You have the last name Law. And, and when I left that book, I just felt like I have to add prayer to a list of things that I do. Well, if prayer is fundamentally about moving toward God and inviting God toward us, then prayer is fundamentally relational. It's not fundamentally a duty, even though it is somewhat of a duty. I think when we look at our other relationships, we can think of prayer like that. Uh, We don't need to put on a checklist, talk to this person, unless we're having trouble talking to that person, and maybe putting it on the checklist will help us. So sometimes it's good to say, I am going to pray even though I don't want to, I don't feel like it. But at the bottom of it, why we pray is because we're entering towards God. We're moving towards him in dependence and affection and inviting him to move towards us. Second, we can set aside the notion that prayer must take the same shape in every instance. We can set aside this idea that prayer only looks like a particular way. So we can set aside this idea that prayer must look like uh, heads bowed, eyes closed, hands clasped, complete silence scenario. We should pray in that way sometimes, but that's not how prayer will look every time we pray. Instead, we adopt a practice of prayer that infuses all of our life, where we breathe our prayers toward God, where we think our thoughts toward God, where in every moment of our lives, we invite God into that moment as we move towards him in prayer. Think once again, comparing our communication with God with our communication with other people is helpful. Uh, there, there are times if you're married or if you're dating somebody where you set a t- aside special time to talk directly to that person. It's a very focused time where you address particular issues. But then if you're like most of us, while you're at work, like somewhere throughout the day, you send a text to your spouse letting them know something that happened in your day or asking them how you're doing. And it's a different kind of communication, but it's still meaningful. Or you just take a note of something that happens in your day and think, my spouse or my friend would be interested in this. And next time you see them, you talk to them about that. I I think that's the way that we relate to God in our prayers. Sometimes it feels more sacred and set apart, but more often than not, it's just mundane. As we move through our life, we can think our thoughts toward God and invite him into every moment of our day. Third, we can set aside the notion that prayer is a means of controlling God. We can set aside this idea that if we just pray hard enough, God is obligated to do whatever we ask him to do. Because prayer is not a control mechanism 
Instead, it's a relational movement where we move towards God and invite him to move toward us to accomplish his will, whatever that might be, and for him to give us his presence in whatever situation we find ourselves. Prayer is a movement towards God where we give him our wholehearted trust, asking him for what we believe we need, but giving ourselves in that situation to him so he can accomplish what he knows we need. We don't always know what we need. I think if any of us reflect on our lives and think about different prayers that we've prayed over the course of our life, we rejoice that God hasn't answered our prayers in the way we want him to answer them every time. Um, Maybe this is a dumb example, but I I remember in uh, college, there was this girl I was dating, and I really liked her. And I prayed all the time, God, let this relationship work. I, I want to marry this girl. And you know what happened? She broke up with me. And that was very, like, heartbreaking. But, like, now I look back and think, man, God knew what I needed more than I thought I knew what I needed. You know, that's a little bit of a silly example, but, but you can think of so many prayers that you've prayed, and if God had answered them in the way you wanted him to answer them, you would be worse off because of it, and I, I'd submit that he would be less glorified if you just got what you want without him getting what he desired for you. So if prayer is a relational movement towards God in inviting him to do his work in our lives, then we can set aside this idea that prayer is a means of controlling God. That will help us out so much when we get later in this text, because God is never obligated to do what we ask him to do, but he does promise to always be working in our lives to accomplish his will, regardless of what it is. All right. Having brought those things together, we can pray because of Jesus. We should pray because it invites God into our lives, and it's the way we move towards him. Let's move forward in the text. We then must pray in every circumstance. Look at verses 13 through 15. He gives three circumstances. If you're suffering, if you're cheerful, and if you're sick, regardless of where you're at, you ought to pray. You ought to invite God into your life. You ought to move toward him regardless of what you're experiencing. So first he says, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. If if I ask this question to our church, probably there would just be hands going up all over the place. They're suffering. But then I think if I ask the the next question, is anyone cheerful? We'd all still raise our hands for that too, because throughout the course of our lives, there are parts of us that are always suffering and parts of us that are always cheerful. Our, Our lives are rarely just one or the other. And I think what James is doing here is giving the us the full spectrum of our life's experiences. And in it all, he says, pray in an appropriate way to what you're experiencing in that moment. So if you're suffering, petition to the Lord. If you're cheerful, sing praises to God. So if you're suffering, ask God to meet you in your suffering. I think it's okay for you to also ask God to take that suffering away. But James's fundamental drive has not been for us to escape suffering, but to patiently endure it with God assisting us and strengthening us through the hardship so that we come out more holy and more whole on the other side of that suffering. I think that's what James is getting at here again. If you're suffering, ask God to meet you in your suffering and to transform you through it. So we can look at examples elsewhere in the New Testament 
like the Apostle Paul, who had this mysterious thorn in the flesh. And he did pray for God to take it away multiple times, but in the end, he ended up affirming that God's grace is sufficient for his suffering. And I think that's how all of our prayers and suffering should be. We can pray for God to take them away, but ultimately we pray for God to give us sufficient grace so that we can navigate that suffering in the same way that Christ would, so that we can have a Christ like experience of suffering where we come out committed to the will of God in our hardship. But then when we're cheerful, he also instructs us to pray, singing praises to God. Perhaps we need even more of a reminder when we're happy and things are going well to pray than when we're suffering. I think when it gets hard, it's easy for us to remember, oh yeah, I better pray to God about this hardship. But what about when you're happy? What about when things are going well? Isn't it the case that very often we fail to attribute the cheer and joy and happiness in our life to God? I think very often we tend to forget God when things are going well. So we need this instruction that in our happiness, we ought to find God's grace at work. Just as much as we find his grace at work in our lives when we're suffering. So in both of these situations, the good and bad, these opposite ends of the spectrums of life, we should always pray. No matter how good or bad your circumstances are, no matter how in between you might be feeling, you ought to draw near to God through your prayers, inviting him into every moment of your life. So if you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing praises. And now it's like he double clicks on the suffering side of things. Is anyone among you sick? So he dives into the suffering side. I'm going to read this whole passage because there, there are some hard things to understand in this text that we have to get into. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. You might have a lot of questions coming out of that text. You know, what, what does it mean to anoint someone with oil? Um, what, do, what is this prayer of faith? What does it mean for the sick person to be saved and raised up? Maybe even more pressing than all of those, you might be wondering, does Resurrection Church practice this? Do the elders of our church anoint people with oil and pray over them with the expectation that the Lord will heal them? Well, let's work through some of these questions. When we're talking about the sick person here, are we talking about physical sickness or spiritual sickness? This is a question that commentators go back and forth on, and it's really difficult to answer because the word that James uses can refer to a wide variety of weaknesses. They can refer to physical ailments, it can refer to internal ailments, what we might call a mental health struggle or something like that, a different language than what they would have used in James' day. But I, I think that James is taking into account any kind of sickness that we might be experiencing in a severe manner. So I think both physical and internal sicknesses are in view here. I think that that's hard for us to... Um, 
keep in mind that he could be talking about both of them, but in the ancient world, they didn't separate the inner person and the outer person as much as we do. We, we have neat categories of let's go to a doctor for physical problems, and let's go to a psychologist or psychiatrist for mind problems, and let's go to our pastors for spiritual problems. Well, in the ancient world, they didn't separate us out like that. We're just holistic beings. And I don't know that it really is quite easy for us to separate out all of these things. You know, it's hard for us to separate the functions of the brain and our mind, referring to the inner person, and then all of those things have impacts on our physical bodies. So I don't think we should overly try to separate these things. So when we hear James saying, is anyone among you sick? I think we should bring all of these things into view. I think, though, that James has in mind those who are severely sick in whatever case the case might be. So I don't think that he's saying, does anyone have a case of the sniffles? I, I don't think that's what he's getting at. Um, I think instead he's thinking of severe illnesses. I think, too, that James is probably building on some ancient Jewish literature called the Wisdom of Ben Sirah. It's kind of like the Proverbs, but there's a situation described where someone's sick, and they're instructed to pray to the Lord, and then they're instructed to go to see a physician and to take medicine because God created the physician and God gives medicine. And it seems that if those have no effect, then the case is seen as more serious or more severe. And then this author starts talking about sin that may be at the root of it. And uh, I think James is saying, if you're sick, if you're suffering, pray to God. And if that sickness persists, go see a doctor. This is just the common standard practice among ancient Jews. And then if there's no remedy, if, if you are not seeing success and healing and the sickness is severe, call the elders so that they can pray over you and anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. So now we can ask some of these more detailed questions. The sick person calls the elders of the church. Who are they? Those are the pastors of the church in the New Testament. Elder and pastor and overseer all just refer to the same office. So this individual would apparently reach out or they're instructed to reach out to the pastors of the church. And these pastors would meet with this person and pray over them. I think that's pretty simple for us to imagine. Um, pastors praying over people. That's not where our question comes in. Our question comes in with anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, this is a little bit mysterious, but I think it connects to Mark chapter 6, verse 13, where Jesus' disciples had gone out and they healed people and anointed them with oil. So I think it's probably connected to that practice in some way. But we probably have questions about what anointing with oil means. What does it accomplish? Is this a magical thing that happens? Or is this a medicinal thing that happens? Or is this something else? I think we can write off that it's a magical thing. Um, there's no sense that anointing someone with oil has some magical property to it and this person is just magically healed. I don't think that's the case. I also don't think that it, James is saying oil is like medicine, so put, put oil on someone and it will function like medicine. So if that were the case, we might reject this command and say it has no relevance for us other than to take medicine. 
I, I don't think that James is saying, take your medicine. I think instead he's doing something different. So not magical, not medicinal. I think James is drawing on the Old Testament practices where individuals were often consecrated to God or set aside for a special work of God by someone anointing them with oil, whether it was a priest or a prophet, and in this case, the elders of the assembly. So anointing someone with oil is a visible sign that's communicating to that person and to the assembly, this person is being set aside for God. We're entrusting this individual to God as they're facing a severe illness, a sickness that has not been treated, and has, God has not remedied it through the normal prayers of the people. So we consecrate this individual to God, anointing them with oil and praying over them. I think it's important to note that the, the focus or the emphasis is on the prayers of the elders, not on the anointing with oil. So I like the way our translation puts it, turning that into a participle, where the elders come and they pray over him, anointing him with oil. So the emphasis is on the prayer. So it's God working through the prayers of the elders as they consecrate this individual for God's working that they can expect God to heal this person. We have more questions to ask, but let's answer that question. Does Resurrection Church practice this? It would be interesting to take a survey. Um, and some of us would probably say, well, I hope not, because I've heard about the Roman Catholics who do something like this, and it sounds like last rites or something like that. Well, well I would say that there are Christians who have misused this text to come up with things like last rites or, or other practices, but I don't think that should be a reason that we would not practice this. It seems to me that there's nothing in this text that would limit these commands to the apostolic age. I think that we ought to obey these commands. Now, we could ask, has Resurrection Church ever done this? Not in my time here. I don't know about the history of this church prior to when I was here, but we also have not had anyone who has asked us to do this. But I want to say clearly that we believe this is a command from the Lord that's active for us, and I believe that it's active for you. I think that there are times where, as elders, we would suggest this to individuals, but I think the emphasis is on the individual knowing their situation and reaching out to the elders, requesting this, as they themselves commit themselves to God in a special way in their suffering and in their sickness. So would we do this? The answer is yes. Now, I, I will maybe say there are times where we would suggest this. There are times when we think people should ask us for this. But there are probably also times when people would ask us to do this, and we would probably say, no, we don't think that's what's intended here. So if someone came to us and said, hey, I, I have allergies every spring. Will you anoint me with oil and pray over me? I, I don't think that's what he's getting at here. Um, I think that there might be instances where um, we should just say, no, we're not going to do that, because it almost abuses this text, and it swings it back into this magical category that just doesn't exist. But probably more often than most of us have experienced this in our life, this should be happening in local churches as individuals 
fall prey to sickness of various kinds. So what do we do then with that next section? As he goes on, he says the prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. What does it mean that the prayer of faith will save the sick person? This is challenging again because James chooses a word that he uses for like spiritual salvation. Like you're forgiven of sins, you're converted to Christianity. Here though, I think that it is intended to have physical ideas in mind. I think the point is that this prayer accompanied by the anointing with oil will lead to the healing of a person physically or or if the illness is mentally in our language. There's a healing that should be expected as a result of this prayer and anointing with oil. You'll notice that tagged on to this is that conditional sentence. If he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. So we should not think that every severe illness is a result of hidden, harbored sin. That's just not the case. Sometimes it is. I don't think that that should be our default thinking, though. You know, this is what Jesus dealt with with certain individuals. So um, when individuals talked to Jesus and they said, "Is, is this man blind because of his sin or the sin of his parents? And Jesus says it has nothing to do with his sin. So we shouldn't make the assumption that someone is always entrenched in sin, and that's why they're sinful. But also on the other side of that, we should not um, neglect to confess our sins. And when we're undergoing severe illness, if we've committed grave sin, I think we should say maybe these two things are connected, and we should confess our sin. Now here's like the brass tacks on that. You should confess your sin anyway, and we should never go on a witch hunt trying to find sin at the source of every sickness. If they have confessed their sin, they'll be forgiven. I think what's in view here then is when the elders come to pray over this individual and anoint them, there's a pastoral conversation that happens that says, are you harboring sin in your life? I think that elders are to give someone an opportunity to confess their sin with everyone knowing that sin may not be at the root of the problem. So we never assume that sin causes sickness, but we should always be in a mode of confessing our sin that perhaps does lead to sickness. Sometimes that sickness that is a result of sin is when we have guilt that we carry around with us And what we might call a mental health problem might be just the result of guilt that we're carrying around and the isolation that it breeds. And when we confess our sin, that confession is a means of healing that God gives us. We could envision a lot of examples, but at the end of the day, I want us to say we should never assume that sin is the cause of sickness, but we should always be confessing sin as if it will cause sickness. The expectation then is that this individual would find God's healing hand in their life as a result of this dedicated time of prayer. How does that hit you? How does it hit you if someone tells you when we go through this process, we should expect God to heal the person? 
if you're like me, I'm like, ah, you sound like one of those crazy, like, weird faith traditions out there. That's not for us, you know. I, I think this text is a good corrective for those of us who have very little confidence that God will heal people when we pray for healing. I think that's a good corrective for us. James writes very clearly here that we should expect and anticipate the healing work of God. So I just want that to sit with you for a second. But I also want to quickly follow it up and say James says this within a context of a whole letter that places every prayer under the purview of God's will so that none of our prayers can demand something from God but they express our dependence on God and our expectation that he will act according to his will and that sometimes he wills to heal those we pray for. So we don't demand this from God, though we can expect it from God. So I think this one commentator is right when he says, somewhere in our prayers, we must find a balance between never expecting God to heal and requiring him to heal on demand. I think that's the, the lane that we have to live in, where we can expect God to, to heal, but we never demand him to heal. Instead, we give ourselves in this person, we entrust the whole situation to God and pray for his will to be done, and we appeal that he might heal the brother or sister that's sick. We need one final corrective, though, because the reality is that many of us have prayed for family members or other Christians, and God has not healed them. What do we do with that? I think James's regular appeals to suffering well until the Lord comes is our answer here. God will not eradicate all sickness and death until Christ returns. So we know that death, oddly, is part of our life until Christ returns. I, th I think sometimes Christians can look at a text like this and say, well, let's just keep praying. Maybe, maybe this person didn't get healed because I didn't pray with enough faith. Or maybe they didn't go through this process or something like that. I, I don't think we should walk down that road. We know, as we look at the broader contours of the redemptive plan of God, that sickness and death are eradicated on the final day, but not until then. Instead of entrusting ourselves to God, we try to become immortal. And we try to get other people to become immortal as we go through every medical length to keep someone alive forever. We, we spend any dollar amount to keep somebody alive, and it's almost like instead of entrusting someone to God and, and praying in this way, giving them to God and praying for God's will to be done, we just pray for our will to be done, and we'll be satisfied with nothing less than immortality. That's an evil way to live, even though it sounds like we're trying to be pro-life or preserving life or something like that. We will experience death in this life, and that's part of suffering well. Dying well is part of living well. Even as we pray for God to bring us healing, we entrust ourselves to him, knowing that we pass through the portal of death to find life forevermore. Those are our options. Pass through death or Christ returning. 
So we don't say that God has failed to keep his promises. We just say that we're part of a slice of redemption where God is working to undo death forever, and it might touch us. We might taste of death. Our loved ones will taste of death. Believers in here will, but we can still entrust them to God because even if he doesn't raise them up in the moment that we pray, he will raise them up on the final day. So like Elijah's prayer, where we keep looking, we patiently wait for God to bring about the resurrection of all those who have tasted death in Jesus Christ. So we ought to pray in every circumstance. Number two, though, we ought to pray in a community of confession. We ought to pray in a community of confession. He broadens his focus now in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. So we ought to be confessing our sins to one another as we approach the Lord in prayer. We ought to adopt a lifestyle of confession of sin that involves bringing other people into the picture. At Resurrection Church, we have to become a community of faith where we can confess our sins to one another. This is not an easy thing to do because we're all hypocrites. We all, at one time or another, are hypocrites, and it makes it hard for us to confess our sin for other people, to other people, and then they look at us and say, well, that guy, you know, at least pretends he doesn't do anything wrong, so it's hard to confess sin to the other person. We're, we're broken people, and it's hard to confess our sin together to one another, but that's what James instructs us to do here. And we have to grow together as a church so that we can confess our sins to one another. This is the exact opposite of our inclination because our sin is fundamentally antisocial. Our sin tries to isolate us. I think we've all experienced this. When we're living in sin, we don't want to be around other Christians. We want to be isolated. We want to kind of nourish and cherish our sin and, and allow it to flourish in our lives. But we need to do the exact opposite. We need to bring our sin out in the open in a community of faith. We need to confess our sins to one another so that they will pray for us, so that they will intercede on our behalf because the prayer of a righteous person is very effective. I would direct your attention to a book called Life Together by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He has an excellent chapter on this where he talks about the necessity of confessing sins in a community of faith. I think some of us will read this and say, no, James, thank you very much. I'm happy just to confess my sin to God in private, and I don't need to bring other people into it. So why should we bring other people into it? Well, you know, the Bible answer, because James tells us to. And that's good enough of an answer. That should be good enough for all of us. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer identifies four breakthroughs that happen when we confess our sin in the context of a community. I just want to outline them here to encourage you to cultivate relationships within this assembly where you confess sins to one another and you intercede for one another. First, there's a breakthrough to true community. Bonhoeffer notes that Christians 
even though they come together on Sundays and they sing and they pray and they share in the supper and, and they might meet throughout the week, Christians can be very, very lonely because they haven't broken through to true community as they confess their sin. Instead, they let, they let sin isolate themselves so that their truest selves, who they really are, can never be opened up to other people because sin will be found there, and they refuse to confess sin. I, I think that this is like an epidemic in Christian churches where there are lonely Christians, and the source of that loneliness is a refusal to confess sins to one another. Last night, I was talking to a guy. He's not part of our church. But he, he was telling me about how hypocritical everyone at his church is and how, how awful they are. And he, he was just so angry. And, I, and like, like, dude, why do you care so much about what all these other people think? He said, you know, I think the most honest answer is I'm lonely. He's a lonely Christian who can only see the sins of other people as they can, you know, perhaps only see his sins. I don't know. If, I doubt they're, they're actually that hypocritical. But, but it's sin that isolates us and makes us lonely so that when we show up with other people, we know we're hiding our sin. We assume other people are hiding their sin and all we see are religious hypocrites and we never break through to true community. Think as you get to know people in this church, you'll hear testimonies of people who finally confess their sins in a community of faith and for the first time, it seemed like they actually had a Christian community to walk through life with them. For the first time at a prayer meeting, they felt like they could pray because they had opened themselves to be a praying community through the confession of sin. So I want to exhort you that if you feel lonely, you should ask yourself, is it because I'm harboring sin that actually makes me antisocial, that separates me from true community? Your breakthrough out of loneliness will be through an open confession of sin in the community of faith as others intercede before God on your behalf. And as you confess that sin, it's like it loses its power. Second, not only is there a breakthrough to community, there's a breakthrough to the cross. There's a breakthrough to the cross. What Bonhoeffer is getting at here is that as we go through that very humbling experience of confessing sins to one another, and as we experience the shame of our sin, as we articulate it out loud, we're picking up our cross and following after Jesus, who himself suffered on the cross and experienced shame for sin, though in his case it was for sin he never committed. You see, many of us try to, in the privacy of our own lives, we'll say we've confessed our sin to God, but I think what actually happens is we confess our sins to ourselves and we affirm forgiveness that comes from within ourselves. Think about it this way. Think of the embarrassment that it is to confess your sin specifically to other Christians who are sinful like you. How much more so when we truly confess our sin to God? I think many of us, when we confess our sin to God, we've just placed the label of God on ourselves. And we never actually stand before the righteous and holy God and confess our sin to him. But when we do so in community with others, 
we pick up our cross and we take on that shame and we walk the rough road of discipleship in true repentance as we expose ourselves for who we are in our sin. But then third, there's a breakthrough to new life. As we take up that new cross, we enter into the new life that we have in Christ as we now hate our sins and confess them and we find forgiveness, the forgiveness of Christ that is spoken to us from the mouth of our fellow Christians as they intercede on our behalf. Instead of trying to forgive ourselves, we hear the affirming words of pardon from our fellow believers that are assured through Jesus Christ. No, they can't forgive us, but Christ forgives us, and he enables his people to speak his words of forgiveness on his behalf. And as we enter into that forgiveness, we enter into new life. And in that new life, there's an assurance of pardon that goes with us as we leave our meeting with the community of saints. Instead of going back to our sin in isolation alone, we've given over that sin to God as we confess to one another. Certainly, our confession of sin should be done appropriately. Don't post it on your Facebook page. Don't stand up and proclaim it loudly. Instead, with those Christians who you trust as you've come to know them, confess your sin and find help with other believers. Ask them to pray to God on your behalf. And as people confess their sins to you, your responsibility is to keep that private. Don't talk to other people about the sins that someone else has confessed to you. But your responsibility goes further. You ought to pray for that brother and sister who confessed their sin. You ought to appeal to God on their behalf, and then you can speak to them the assurance of pardon that they have in Jesus. You don't just hear their sorrow, their suffering, their sin, and say, that stinks. I'm glad you said something. You pray for them and you affirm where you are repentant, Jesus actually forgives you. If this does not happen as a regular practice within our church, I'm afraid that there are two negative outcomes. One negative outcome when we fail to confess our sin with one another is that we will all be a lonely people showing up every Sunday forced to be hypocrites. We will be lonely, and we will be hiding our sin, and it will ultimately lead to our condemnation. So we ought to confess our sins to one another. But there's also another bad path that happens when people remain alone in their sin. Because we are not made to live in isolation, if we refuse to go through the humbling confession of sin, what happens is we find other people who will celebrate that sin with us. One road leads to condemnation of ourself, of the Lord. The other leads to a celebration of sin. That, too, leads to condemnation on the final day. This gift of confession should be utilized in our assembly. should be utilized as you meet with people one-on-one, as you get to know people in your home groups and as our, at our Wednesday night gatherings and everywhere else. Connect with people and genuinely, truly, specifically confess your sin, knowing that this is a gift from God for you. So we pray with confidence in the power of prayer. 
We pray in every circumstance, and we do so in a community of confession, knowing that though our fellow believers can't offer us forgiveness, Christ does, because he suffered the shame and guilt of sin on the cross on our behalf, and he paves a way for us to access the Father. So as we sing in response, and then as we come to the table, let this be an invitation to you if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have access to God, to, to receive Christ. For all those of us who would identify as Christians, to remember that this Jesus made a way for us to pray in every season of life, in every circumstance, and to find forgiveness for every sin. Father, would you meet with us now as we respond in song, as we come to the table and remember the Christ who grants us access to your throne, the Christ who took the punishment for all of our sin so that whenever we confess our sin, you will be faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness. Would you work your cleansing, work in our hearts now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.